Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Tully. Uh, today, we're going to be starting a kind of a two-part lecture. Um, ordinarily, this takes about a week or two in class, and so that's what we'll be talking about. Uh, we're going to be talking about five changes in American society, five big changes, and they're so big, I'm going to have to cover them over two weeks. Two weeks, so today we're talking about three. Next week, we're talking about two uh, changes in American society. If you notice on the first slide of the PowerPoint, it says 1870s-ish to 1910-ish. Uh, these, you know, there's a lot of different stuff that we're kind of covering in this time period. Kind of doing a broad overview so we can get to the 20th century. However, I would like to talk about the major trends. Like, if you were to ask me, hey, Tully, you know, a lot of things happen in the U.S. I mean, clearly the United States has changed over time, and so a lot of things change right after Reconstruction or right before right after the turn of the century, uh, what are the five biggest? And I'll be like, well, you know, let me tell you what these are. Now, all of these contribute to modern American life, all right? They kind of make the more modern American society we know today. Um, in history circles, we debate about that a lot, about, you know, when does America really embrace modernity? Um, modernity, that's a fancy word you can... Show it to your friends and relatives that, hey, you learned a big fancy word at Nichols, modernity. Just the process, modernity means the process of becoming modern. And all these factors really come together, all five of these big trends come together to make America on the path to modern life. Um, it's making America a much more ethnically and religiously diverse place. Um, start having more, you know, people from different places coming in, a lot more different religions than just Protestant Christianity becomes a much more consumer-oriented society. By the time we get to the 19-teens, 1920s, America has very much switched from a producer-centric society to a consumer-centric society. We're going to talk about that much more over this. But I just want you to think about that. It's just like, what does this mean for the uh, country in general? It's also a much more industrialized society. Uh, before this time, before the Civil War, the country was primarily agrarian. Uh, after the time we get out of this, I mean, you still have agriculture, don't get me wrong, but uh, industry, manufacturing, becomes a much bigger part of the equation. Finally, it becomes a much more urbanized society. Uh, more people begin living in cities in this time period. I believe it's by the 1920 census, you have more people living in cities than in uh, more rural areas, farms and places like that. So cities start getting much larger in this time period. Now, all these changes can be seen as good or bad, depending upon the speaker. We're going to talk a lot about the different groups who have different opinions about this. Uh, some argue this is putting America towards a collapse, you know, towards a great fall. America is going to fall apart. It's going to be a horrible country. Uh, others say it's going to be towards a bright, shiny future. Things are going to become better. You know, in spite of all this, people really believe that things are going to change. And that's actually pretty unique in history. Uh, I took a course a long time ago called History of the Future. It was a very fascinating course because for the longest time, you know, the way you lived your life was pretty much how your parents lived their lives and your grandparents lived their lives and so on and so forth. But now things are starting to really change. The way you lived your life may not be the same way your parents lived and the way your children are going to live. And so things are definitely going to change. It's people definitely see that changes are coming. Now, if these changes are good or bad, that's up to the speaker. So the first one we're going to talk about, remember there's five, we're going to only talk about three this week. The first one of these five is the rise of national business and the industrial system, 
Or to put it briefly, the rise of big business. Now this, sorry, that's my chair squeaking. That's nothing weird. Uh, this is the biggest and most complicated of the five. These, like I said, this is probably the broadest. This one is the most complex, um, most complicated, has the most moving parts, part of the pun, uh, most all over the country. A lot of different factors behind this rise. Uh, rise of corporations and companies that are doing business nationwide. That's the main thing I want you to focus upon. This is nationwide business. Uh, before this time, you'd be hard-pressed to get materials or get things from outside a 10 to 15-mile radius of your house. I want you to just imagine for a second. Um, <coughs> uh, let's imagine we all lived in Raceland. Uh, some of y'all live in Raceland. Um, Raceland's not too far from here from Thibodeau. But let's say we all lived in Raceland, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm living there, working there, and uh, let's say it's Tully's Tailors. I, I'm a tailor. I make clothes. You know, I'm Tully. I run the joint. I run Tully's Tailors. You go in there for a shirt. You know, I can show you these are the type of materials I can get. You know, this is a type of uh, cotton or fabric that's grown nearby here. I only know a certain number of different shirt styles. You come in, I measure you, you know, I'm like, all right, well, here are my, you know, three different types of material, here are my two styles, which one would you prefer? You tell me which one you prefer, I make the shirt, and then I give it to you. It's, you know, I give it to you a couple times later, it's not available for you instantaneously. It may not be the cheapest thing, and it may not be the quickest thing, because it takes me a while to make the shirt, but you give me a shirt, <clears throat> it's a fairly high quality, it's handmade stuff. Pretty much everything you consumed, all the products you might have before this time period, came from around you, came from you know places around you, places nearby. All your food came from nearby. Um, after this, I mean, I'd say it's, I mean, you know, we're not in class. You're probably at home right now. So I want you to just look at your clothes. Look at a shirt. Maybe the shirt you're wearing. Maybe a shirt in your closet. I guarantee you it probably wasn't made in the United States, let alone within 10 miles of you. It's probably made in Vietnam, Indonesia, or something like that. But that's a major change. You go from having pretty much everything you put your hands upon coming within a 10-mile radius to nowadays where pretty much nothing you use in a day comes from immediately by you. So what are the factors behind this rise? Well, the big one is you see there's three ones, three there. Uh, the first one is transportation improvements and new technologies. When we talk about big business, the first real big business, the first real trans-country, um, transcontinental business is the railroad. Pretty much railroads are the central main driving force behind America's change to big business. They're the reason why goods are able to go across the country. They're the reason why you have nationwide markets is because the railroads. Railroads are huge. They're ginormous operations. They require a great deal of capital, labor, and organization. To make a railroad, you need a lot of money. That's capital. You need a lot of workers, both skilled and unskilled. By the way, you might need to know this. A skilled worker is a worker that needs specialized training, uh, specialized training to learn how to do something. So something like a doctor, a surgeon, well, that's not really on a railroad, is it? Um, you know, an engineer. You know, you have to have specialized training to become an engineer. 
uh, the people who do the logistics, who figure out, you know, what time railroads are going to be in different places at different times. They need specialized training. But you also need unskilled labor. Unskilled labor, this does not mean they're like unable to do anything. Unskilled pretty much just means you don't need specialized training before you get the job. You learn it on the job. So something like a, um, a rail splitter, you know, people who put down the rails for the railroads. Um, pretty much you just need a strong back. I mean, you know, yes, it does require skill to keep yourself in shape and to hit the nails, hit the rails properly, but you can learn that upon the job. And railroads need a lot of people. They need a lot of people that work. And also, when you have a lot of people across the country, you need a lot of organization. You need to figure out, you know, if a if a train's going to be leaving New Orleans and arriving in Houston, you've got to have people ready to leave the train in New Orleans, have enough fuel to take it to Houston, have enough people to, like, unload the train, have enough goods, have enough to make sure they have the fuel. It's a lot of different things. Railroads make the delivery of people and goods cheaper more efficient, and a lot faster. All three of those things. When you use a railroad, it's going to be cheaper, much cheaper. You can haul a lot more stuff, and you can haul it a lot faster. And the thing with railroads, wherever a railroad went, it generated business. Railroads are huge for business because there's a lot of other enterprises that go along with a railroad. It's not just the railroad itself. Other stuff goes along with the railroad. What sort of things go along with the railroad? Well, I'm glad you asked. If you go over one slide, you're going to see the telegraph. That's a telegraph. A telegraph is a very proto-form of uh, communication. Um, however, it's, it's almost instantaneous. You can send uh, messages across the wire much quicker than you can through the mail system. It's almost instantaneous. These, railroad, these railroads had telegraph lines that went alongside it. The telegraph allowed for cross-country communication. You could send a telegram message from New York to San Francisco, and it's going to be there within minutes, within minutes, if not seconds. It goes all the way across. Now, these are very short messages, but still, you have instantaneous messages, almost instantaneous messages. Likewise, later on, they put these telegraph lines underneath the ocean. You could have transcontinental communication, which is instant, almost instantaneous. This is a huge deal. Uh, before this time, you know, it takes a couple of months to sail from America to England. Uh, even to sail from um, America, from New York to San Francisco, which is all part of the United States of America, it's a very long voyage because you don't have the Panama Canal. It's actually pretty dangerous across the United States before the railroad, uh, the middle part. You actually had to go all the way around South America to get from uh, New York to you know to San Francisco. Now, thanks to railroads and uh, telegraphs, this trip is much quicker, much cheaper, much faster. Now, the telegraph is huge. It's it's the mainstay of like basically how do you communicate between different offices and different uh, parts of the country very quickly. You do telegraphs, which is something mandatory if you're dealing with railroads. Uh, another great thing that comes about is refrigerated rail cars. If you, if you go over one more time, you're going to see the refrigerated rail car. This totally changes our diet. This totally changes the way we eat things. Because refrigeration allows for um, food from all over the country to come across. Two, I want you to really think about, number one is fruits. Um, you ever wonder why we have bananas in stores year-round? It's because they're shipped, like, cold. 
Uh, bananas, <laughs> they don't grow year-round in the United States. Pretty much they're in different places and you know, south of the border. They don't grow around here. But now you have pretty much fruit and vegetables around the country pretty much whenever you want them. That's a big deal. But the biggest change in our diet is meat. The refrigerated rail car allows for you to just get a piece of meat. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen a cow. Cows are big. Cows weigh a couple tons. You know, if you kill a cow, you get several, not several thousand, but if you maybe a thousand or two, definitely several hundred, if not a thousand or two, pounds of meat. Um, that can be an issue without refrigeration because you have to figure out a way to like smoke it or cure it or eat it really quick. Now, I'm sure some of you are pretty hungry, but there's no way you'll be able to eat like a thousand pounds of meat in a day before it went rotten. It's also very expensive uh, before this time period to get meat because, you know, you're, you have to raise the cow, you have to kill the cow, and th- butcher the cow, and then, you know, you have that all that meat. So it's very something that's a very upper-class thing. But now, thanks to refrigerated rail cars, you could take the cow, have it butchered. Uh, weirdly enough, they're always butchered in Chicago. Chicago is the meatpacking place. You kill the cow. You cut it up into chunks of meat that goes to your local grocery store, and it doesn't spoil because of the refrigeration. Now, I know not everybody here, not ever, not all of y'all eat meat, but uh, probably a good portion of y'all do. You buy meat from the store in, like, pounds. You know, generally you don't buy a whole animal to eat for meat. I mean, okay, maybe with a chicken, but it's already plucked or whatever. But, like, with beef, you don't eat the entire cow. You just eat a piece of meat or you grind it up. This is a huge difference that really changes the way our diet works. Uh, likewise, the process of making steel out of iron. This is a big one. Ste- if you go one more slide, you're going to see a steel mill. Steels are very important. Steel is hugely important for rail cars. Uh, pretty much steel, if you're unaware, uh, steel is basically iron that's been treated with a process that makes it both lighter and stronger. And railroads need a ton of steel. Pretty much everything with a railroad is steel. The lines are steel. The, the trains themselves are made out of steel. Uh, steel is still used a lot in building materials and stuff. Uh, maybe not for your house that probably is made out of wood, has a wooden frame or something. But if you're dealing with like a steel building or a business, a lot of times it's a steel building. Very strong. It's much cheaper than iron and much stronger than iron. And it's perfected this process. It's perfected this process. Uh, the way you can think about it, just go to your kitchen. Go to your uh, kitchen. Uh, pick up a stainless steel pan versus a cast iron pan. I guarantee you the cast iron pan is going to weigh a ton more. It's good. You, you, know, you can pick up a stainless steel pot, no problem, with one hand. It might be a challenge for you to pick up a cast iron something or other with just one hand. Uh, another thing that's really perfect in this time period, go over one more slide, is oil. Oil production becomes huge in this time period. Uh, oil refineries are developed. Uh, petroleum had been around for a while. You, you dig it from the ground or dig it from um, get it from the um, – well, later on you have the offshore rigs, which I'm sure a lot of your families might be involved in. Maybe, maybe some of you are involved with oil rigs. But um, oil comes from the ground. Um, oil is used. It's refined. Uh, it's used to lubricate the machines. Um, in fact, I was mowing my grass the other day, and then the oil cap came off, and you know, thankfully I stopped my, my lawnmower right then, but that could destroy everything. If you don't have oil in a machine like that with all the pistons and all the heat, you have to have oil to lubricate the thing so it keeps working. And all oil becomes a huge business. This is even before gasoline or petroleum as we know it. 
just oil in of itself. Later on, they're going to turn it into gasoline, which is used to power the you know the engines. Well, trains don't really use that, but cars will later on. But it all comes from oil. And so all these are massive businesses. You know, I just named you four things, telegraphs, refrigeration, steel, and oil, that are highly dependent upon the railroads. Theoretically, this is a separate business, but these totally come from the railroads. Likewise, you have the rise of entrepreneurs and managers, right? These are two new jobs, two new titles that haven't really come around before and really are highly dependent upon the railroads, at least in America. An entrepreneur is somebody who basically creates a company. People who own these companies get really, really rich. And a lot of these entrepreneurs at this time period, they come from fairly modest or even non-existent means. A couple entrepreneurs I want you to know about. A uh, guy on the left right there is John D. Rockefeller. John D. Rockefeller is crazy wealthy. He ultimately becomes the richest of these guys, one of the richest of these guys. Uh, he is standard oil. Basically, he uses ruthless aggression to pretty much buy up all the oil companies in the United States, making standard oil. Ultimately, it becomes a monopoly. It gets split up. But standard oil becomes the oil company. It becomes the oil company that pretty much runs the United States of oil supply. Um, it does split up, as I said. As I said, it it's one of its descendant. Its main descendant is Exxon. Um, Exxon is the main descendant of Standard Oil nowadays. I know there's a lot more gasoline companies nowadays, but Standard Oil um, it did get split up because it was ruled to be a destructive monopoly. Still, its main piece became Exxon. That's John D. Rockefeller. He's the guy who is involved with Standard Oil. Uh, the next person I want to talk about, Andrew Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie, like I said, he comes from very humble means. He is a Scottish immigrant. He's an immigrant who comes to the United States. He, I mean, ultimately Rockefeller becomes wealthier than him, but Carnegie is the first one to become a billionaire. Andrew Carnegie is the first billionaire within the United States. Remember, this is in like the eight, late 1800s, so... Crazy rich, adjusted for inflation. A billion dollars back in 1890 is like infinity dollars. Okay, maybe not infinity dollars, but several billion dollars. Uh, he is U.S. Steel. Pretty much he doesn't invent steel by any means. He doesn't really invent any new process of manufacturing steel. He just buys up all the steel companies. And pretty much it too becomes a monopoly where pretty much all the steel, remember steel is used in everything in, for, in building and construction, is done through Andrew Carnegie. He gets crazy wealthy. If you go over one more, you're going to see the guy behind the railroads. Now, here's the thing with railroads. Uh, railroads tended not to be owned by all one company. They were not a monopoly in that sense. Uh, railroads were so expensive, a lot of times you have joint ventures with different states. Uh, there's no one person who owns all the railroads. Um, there are all these different individual lines that go around. But the guy who's probably the biggest railroad baron is Cornelius Vanderbilt. Um, but yes, they later named the university after him. He is the guy who gets crazy rich off the railroads. He's not the only one who has railroads. Um, unlike Carnegie and Rockefeller, who are the only ones, uh, there are other people who have railroads that get very wealthy. Uh, Vanderbilt is probably the one who gets the most wealthy. How wealthy does he get? Well, I'll tell you. His grandson, not even Vanderbilt himself, but Vanderbilt's grandson, builds the largest private estate in the United States. The largest house in the United States is owned by and built by one of Vanderbilt's grandchildren. Not even the old man himself, his grandchildren. 
grandchild. Uh, it's the Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina. It's four acres under one roof. I'll repeat that. It's a four-acre house, not land. There's tons of land attached to it. The house itself, under roof, is four acres. That's ludicrous. Um, in fact, uh, one of the Vanderbilt's descendants, uh, Gloria Vanderbilt, had a son named Anderson Cooper, who you might see on CNN. So yeah, Anderson Cooper, his mom is a Vanderbilt. He comes from a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty well-to-do family. Uh, finally, you have J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan is the main investor. He's the guy who loans these guys money. Uh, the thing with like really rich people and billionaires and stuff is a lot of times they're not liquid. A lot of times they don't have cash on them. A lot of times their wealth is based upon the percentage of ownership they have in the company. Uh, for instance, when they say that like Jeff Bezos, the guy who owns Amazon, made like $11 billion in one day, um, it's probably because the price of Amazon stock went up. It's not like he had $11 billion issued into his bank account. Um, basically, the value of the stock went up, and because he owns a very large percentage of Amazon, that's how he made $11 billion in one day. It's not that he actually got $11 billion in his bank account. So because you're not really liquid, it might be hard to get cash. That's where somebody like J.P. Morgan comes in. J.P. Morgan is a guy who's like the banker to these millionaires and billionaires who helps them get cash money. He knows they're good for it because they own all these companies, but if they need cash, they go to him. Uh, he's an interesting character. Uh, once he got rich enough, he actually held most of his office hours, you know, whenever he met with these millionaires and billionaires, in his yacht. He had a yacht outside of New York City. Um, he, he always felt kind of uh, self-conscious about how large his nose was. I don't know why. So he's like, you know what? I'm just going to pretend I'm like a sea captain. And he hangs out in, the, uh, in New York Harbor for most of the time. So those are the entrepreneurs. They're the ones who really get into this. They get quite wealthy. Uh, their critics label them robber barons. If you go one, one more, you'll see a political cartoon of them as robber barons. Uh, if you zoom in, you'll kind of see how they're able to get a lot of money. It is a lot of times they're really cheap. A lot of times they're not paying their employees very much. A lot of times they're being ruthless and undercutting the competition. Um, they're called robber barons. They would destroy, you know, their, their smaller competition. And a lot of this is possible because there's really no government regulation on business in this time period. Um, government really tried to stay out of business. Government really tried to do the thing where they're like, you know what, we'll just let business do its own thing. You might have heard it called laissez-faire. That's kind of what this was. Uh, the other thing I want you to know about, the other type of business person, is the manager. Now, the manager is a middle-class phenomenon. This actually kind of becomes the real middle class within the United States, is the manager. Now, I'm, I'm assuming everybody's here had a, has had a job of some sort. A manager, most simply defined, is somebody who has authority but not ownership. Um, I'm sure some of y'all have worked in a fast food restaurant. Anytime you go to work, your manager's there. You have a, a shift manager or a day manager. There's some sort of manager who is there. But the owner may not be there. In fact, in a lot of places I know, the owner doesn't show up that often. But the manager's already there. Now, here's the thing. The owner is the one who actually owns the business. But the manager is the authority when the owner is not there. The reason you have that is because businesses get too large. You know, for instance, uh, back when it's like at Tully's Tailors, maybe I have some apprentices. You know, there's only a couple of people who work for me. They're all in one shop. I can pretty much run all of them. 
But once start once you start having these very large businesses with different locations and different shifts, that's when you need managers. You have to have somebody who has authority, but not necessarily ownership. Now, another thing that really helps these things is government aid. I don't have a slide for that. That's weird. I should. Or maybe it's all at the beginning. Yeah, it is. Government aid. It's a couple slides back. You don't, you don't have a slide for this one, so it's okay. Uh, government aid. The government really helps these businesses, even though they don't regulate them. Right? Uh, the government is actually heavily, heavily involved in aiding big business. Uh, the best example of the railroads involves the land for the railroads themselves. Uh, railroads need land. Railroads need dedicated land. And in the United States, if land is not owned by an individual, it's considered to be owned by the federal government. Federal land. You've probably heard of that. So the federal government had a lot of land. It had a ton of land. And it wanted to figure out a way to finance these railroads. Because railroads are very expensive. When the Transcontinental Railroad Act was passed, and that's probably the most important railroad act, basically uh, the U.S. Congress says we're going to give money to build a railroad that goes from you know the East Coast to the West Coast. So we don't have to go all the way around South America to get to San Francisco. This is going to cost a lot of money. And the federal government didn't have that much money in this time period. What they had instead was land. So what they did was not only did they give the railroad companies the land that the railroad was on. And this is one of those times I wish I had a chalkboard or maybe I made a slide about this. They gave the railroad companies kind of a checkerboard pattern of one acre on either side of the railroad tracks, kind of skipping an acre. So they didn't have, like, large blocks of land. But, like, every other acre is owned by the railroad company if it butts up against the railroad. Now, how can a railroad company make money off of this? They can sell that land. They can sell those acres of land to farmers and stuff, because here's the deal. And this is going to be the most boring thing I ever tell you, but trust me, it's fascinating. (laughs) I think it's fascinating. The closer you are to a railroad in this time period, the lower your interest rate is, if that makes any sense. Railroads were necessities to getting your goods to market. You know, if you want to make money by selling your, you know, your farm goods or whatever, you had to be near a railroad. And the closer you are to a railroad, the more likely banks are willing to give you a lesser interest rate because of your proximity to the railroad. You're more inclined to get your, land, your, uh, your goods to market. So the closer you are to a railroad, the more valuable that land is, and that's how the railroads make their money back. The federal government gives them land that the railroads build the railroads you know, on, and then they sell that land that the federal government gave them, you know, that checkerboard acre, so that they can make money off of it. That's how railroads make their money. Also, a lot of times the federal government would give them money, straight up money, give up capital. Federal government still does that from time to time. Uh, for instance, uh, this might date us a little bit, but they passed the, one of those coronavirus relief acts, gave a lot of uh, money to different companies and corporations so they could pay their workers. Federal government is actually helping out workers quite a bit. Sorry, helping out companies quite a bit. The government also protects big business. Uh, a big one, before this time period, and it actually takes a while, the federal government does not recognize the legality of labor unions. Uh, labor unions were considered illegal in this time period. In fact, if a company would go on, if uh, workers would ever go on strike, federal government might send in federal agents to help bust a strike. That happens quite a bit. There's a lot of these strikes that happen where the federal government sends in people to bust the strike to help out the company. So you have basically what you have here is new technologies, 
new people, new workers, entrepreneurs and managers, and finally a government that really helps them. And there's a lot of changes that get come about. A lot of changes that big business brings about. Uh, the one I have to tell you about, and like I said, this is kind of complicated, but just bear with me for a second, is the rise of vertical and horizontal integration. This allows for businesses to be very big and become monopolies. All right, I just want you to imagine a process. Let's say, I don't know, making a shirt. All right, uh, making a shirt has a lot of different processes. You have to grow the cotton, you have to sew the cotton into thread, you have to make the thread into fabric, you have to you know, cut it, you have to turn it together, and you have to ship it. Okay, if I have vertical integration in a company, in a, in a process, in, a, in an industry, I own every process, every step of the process. So for making clothes, I own the cotton farms, I own the looms, I own the tailors, I own the retailers. That's vertical integration. If you imagine a map, it's, you know, you go from top to bottom. Horizontal integration is when you own one process so much that multiple companies come to you. Like, let's say with the shirts, I become the best at making fabric. And pretty much all sorts of shirt companies, you know, uh, Abercrombie and Old Navy and The Gap and I don't know where you kids buy your clothes nowadays, Puma, whoever, they all come to me and I'm the one who makes their cotton. Does that make sense? I'm the one that sells their cotton. They, they have their own cotton farms, but they have to come to me. That's horizontal integration. Now, when you own both, when you have both vertical and horizontal integration over a industry, that's called a monopoly. Pretty much you own the entire industry. That's what you have with Standard Oil. That's what you have with U.S. Steel. Uh, the next thing that kind of comes about is the rise of the factory. And not just the factory, but factory labor, which is widespread unskilled labor. Let's go back to shirts. I don't know what my deal with shirts today. But imagine if a, a shirt factory came in to Tully's Tailors. All of a sudden, you have people making shirts who may not know how to make an entire shirt. In fact, they probably don't. They've just broken up into so many processes. And, you know, Tully's Tailors, that's skilled labor because I have to know how to make an entire shirt. But if you're working in the shirt factory, maybe you're just sewing on a collar button. You learn how to do that within like two minutes. And all day, you're just sewing on that collar button. You're sewing on a collar button, ship it down the line. You don't know how to make an entire shirt. But this really starts shifting labor. This is one of the reasons why you have... You go from agricultural-dominated uh, econ economy to a more industrialized nation. There's a higher level of efficiency in a factory, but not necessarily quality, due to the scale. All right? Just because you're just making so many shirts, it's nonstop. You can sew on a button a lot quicker than you can make an entire shirt. So basically, if you've just like cut down the shirt-making process, or whatever, you know, whatever material you want to have, into all these different steps... If you're doing that nonstop, it's going to be way quicker than a tailor. Way quicker. Like I said, before this time, all products were custom made and made to honor, made, made to order. Uh, labor was periodic. For instance, at Telly's Tailors, if uh, I don't have any shirt orders, I might go fishing. I might go club shop. I set my own hours. But in a factory, work is regular. Work is hourly. You know, you start up at nine and you end at nine. Uh, generally, this time period. 12-hour uh, days, six days a week was the most common labor thing. Items are not wholly constructed by one individual. They're made in shifts. You know, when you go into the shirt factory, there are going to be shirts ready for you to do, starting up. 
pretty much wherever the last group stopped. Also, the idea of going to work. Remember, before this time, most people lived where they worked. Like, if you had a tailor shop, I'd you know, tell these tailors, I, I probably lived in the back or my family was on you know the second story. The idea of going somewhere to work now enters into the American vernacular. Now, I could go upon this for a while, and if we were in class, I probably would, so let me just kind of move on. All these things have implications with differing effects. A big one is limiting possibilities. In the minds of, of people who work these places, the possibility for rising up and advancement was, li was limited. Uh, before this time, there was at least the fantasy you could, you could rise up. Uh, let's go back to Telly's Tailors, you know? Let's say you're an apprentice. Let's say, you know, hey, I'm working for Tully, and he's having me do the shirts that he doesn't want to do. You know, you get really good at it, and one day you're like, you know what, I'm going to make my own, you know, tailor shop. I'm going to make the different shirts with different fabrics, different whatever. You can't do that working in the shirt factory because all you know how to do is sew that one button. This puts small businessmen and farmers at a huge disadvantage in the larger market. Uh, farmers in particular, they don't feel that they can compete with some of these big food factories, some of this big industrialization that comes about with food. They don't feel that they could compete. Likewise, if you have a farm that's far away from a railroad, you feel like you can't get your goods to market, and you're getting kind of screwed over because your interest rates just went up because you're so far from the railroad. They start to feel helpless. And this feeling of helplessness is something I want you to remember as we go in later to the semester, because this sense of helplessness is kind of what dominates a lot of these different movements that have come about. Another thing is a lot of this factory work is unsafe, simply. They're dangerous. It's difficult. Uh, work is constant. You know, tell these tailors, I work at my own pace. If you're in a factory, shirts are coming 24-7. Uh, work was constant and seemingly nonstop unless, uh-oh, there's no more shirt orders. They just close the factory down. There's no real sense of job security. I mean, let's say you do work at the shirt company. Uh, let's say you're like, oh, man, I hate this job. I want to, you know, ask for a raise. Well, they could fire you and they could train somebody in about 30 seconds because it only took you 30 seconds to get that job. Uh, there's really no safety precautions. Um, a lot of exposed wires, a lot of exposed, a lot of different things. Uh, there's no OSHA. <laughs> uh, no real safety measures. A lot, of, a lot of people get hurt or maimed. Also, there's no child labor laws. Uh, you start having children, you can have children as young as three or four working in some of these factories. Now, they can make a lot less wages. That can be a problem because I don't know if they've been around a three or four-year-old. They don't have the greatest attention span sometimes, and they're not exactly the most um, oh, diligent, would you say? So a lot of these kids get maimed or hurt, and they lose an arm or something, and they don't grow back. It's pretty, pretty nasty. Uh, the next thing, it really does create a sense of disorder. You know, because of all this, because of all these things changing, you're dealing with international stuff. Uh, not international, but national in, um, impacts. Um, you know, there's a lot of catastrophes that happen that may not happen to you immediately, but it's going to hurt you. Uh, primo example that I like to talk about, not from the time period, but the one I can always talk about. Um, if there's ever a hurricane in the Gulf, like, even if it doesn't hit us, the price of gas is going to go up. So, like, if you didn't know that there was a hurricane in the Gulf, if you didn't have news or weather or something, but all of a sudden you just saw the price of gas went up 20 cents, 
you know, if you know that there's a hurricane in the Gulf, you're like, okay, it's a hurricane, gas goes up. But suppose you didn't know about that. That would make you freak out. That's what happens here. That's pretty much what's happening all the time in this time period. Because if you've lived your entire life with everything happens in a 10-mile radius, and all of a sudden, something happening in New York, you know, the fact that they don't want your shirts anymore means you're out of a job, that can be just an existential sense of dread. And wealthy Americans believe that disorder is spreading, putting uh, America on a path of chaos and decline. Uh, there's a variety of different reasons. A lot of different uh, depressions happen, economic depressions. Uh, actually, weirdly regular in this time period, about every 10 years or so, in a year that ends in a seven, you're going to have a, a, a depression. Not sure why it happens, but it just does. Uh, depressions are not good, but also you lose your job. If you lose a job, you know, you, you might try to find another job. And so the population becomes a lot more mobile. You might hear, hey, you know, we're living in Raceland, but there might be work in Thibodeau. There's work in Homa. Maybe you go to New Orleans. And so people are moving around. They're not just staying where they are. And there's also a fear of strikes. Oh, man, upper-class people are really afraid of strikes. They're really afraid of people um, going on strike and kind of causing disorder there. But in spite of all these fears, most people welcome the changes. Most people think it's going to be different. A lot of workers welcome the changes because they think maybe a revolution is possible. Even though there might be disorder, even though their, their options might be limited, something has changed. Maybe it's changed for the worse, but perhaps it could change for the better. Uh, the wealthy tend to welcome it because they actually get more wealthy. You know, you have billionaires now. Also, pretty much everybody believes that things are going to work themselves out in the future. That's one thing that's America. Is a lot of times, I don't know why people we think this, but we just think things are going to come better for just whatever reason. And the other thing that people really do like is that these goods do get cheaper. You know, it's a lot cheaper to buy a shirt from a factory than it is to get a tailored shirt. Um, I don't know if anybody here has ever bought a tailored shirt. Uh, they're expensive. Very, very, very expensive. Uh, the only experience I have with it is with my sister's wedding dress. I didn't buy my sister's wedding dress. But my sister bought a wedding dress that she had professionally tailored, like made from the ground up. It cost a fortune. Uh, whenever I married my wife, she bought a dress from a store and then she had it tailored later. That was significantly cheaper. And people tend to like cheap goods. Generally, the cheaper a good is, even if the quality isn't as high, you're going to like it, you know? Uh, buying a shirt from Walmart or something may not be as fancy as a tailored shirt, but you know what? It's a fraction of the price. I like my wife's wedding dress was maybe like a tenth of the price of my uh, sister's wedding dress. It, it's comical how much cheaper it was. So the second of the three big changes is immigration. Now I bet you're wondering, Tully, that's that's not really new. Um, and you're absolutely right. That is not, nothing new for America. Uh, we're a nation of immigrants, I mean, aside from the Native Americans, who, if you want to get technical, came over the Bering Strait, you know, 10,000 years ago or whatever. Uh, what is different, though, is where these immigrants are coming from, and also the number. Um, there's a lot more immigrants, and they're coming from new places. Uh, the new regions that most of these new immigrants are coming from are places like Eastern Europe and Southern Europe. Uh, so that'd be places like, um, you know, Russia, all those Eastern European countries, you know, the Slovenias or whatever, and also Italy. Italy's a really big one in this time period. A lot of Italian immigrants come over. 
like I said, it's it's a much higher number of immigrants in this time period. Uh, this is your classic Ellis Island version of uh, immigration. Uh, you also have a lot more Chinese immigrants who we're going to talk about eh, probably in a week or two. Uh, Chinese immigrants are coming over to like California from in Angel Island. That's uh, that's the West Coast equivalent to Ellis Island. It's Angel Island. Uh, so you're having more immigrants come from Southern Europe, Eastern Europe, that sort of thing. Uh, why are they coming over? Well, most of it is economic. Uh, industrialization, all right? You need a lot more workers. You need a lot more people in the United States working these manufacturing jobs, these factory jobs. Uh, unskilled labor, you don't necessarily need to know English or know American culture to do something like sew a button. Man, I am talking about buttons a lot today, aren't I? Uh, that's kind of the case. A lot of this factory work is unskilled. You don't necessarily need to know English or know the culture very well to do it. So that's kind of the pull of the United States. The push is that in Europe, uh, there's a lot of things going on in the southern and uh, southern European and eastern European countries, which has to do with the amount of available land to do farming and stuff. Uh, basically, in a place like Russia, also in a place like Italy, there's a lot of um, governmental political upheaval going on, a lot of changes. A lot of the available land is being taken away. As such, a lot of people are looking towards the United States. You know, it has a lot of job opportunities. Um, not that you can necessarily get rich, but you can live fairly comfortable. Uh, because if you do want to get involved in agriculture, though, uh, the United States still has, in theory, a lot of land that's available to settle. Uh, you still have homesteading going on. We'll talk about homesteading next week. Uh, but homesteading is basically where if you settle on land, you live there for long enough, you get it for free. So there's loads of land that is quote-unquote unsettled, available for uh, farming and things like that. Uh, think in your upper uh, parts of, like, Minnesota, um, you know, Wisconsin. That's where a lot of the Scandinavian uh, immigrants go to. Uh, that's, that's kind of an immigrant population that's been around for a while, Scandinavian immigrants. However, the Southern European and the Eastern European immigrants, they're coming down as well. Additionally, like I said, uh, factories need a ton of workers. They need a ton of workers because you just need all these people to, like, you know, man the assembly line to make these shirts and whatnot. Now, it should be mentioned that most of these immigrants don't plan to stay long term. They're not really looking to resettle. They're not looking to be here for a very long time. Generally, the idea is stay in the United States, make enough money to, like, you know, really save up some a lot of money so you can go back to Europe and live pretty well. You're not going to live like a king, but you can live fairly comfortably with the money you get over there. Now, in time, you start having more families, uh, more women and things. Uh, most of your first-generation immigrants in this time period, most of your earliest immigrants in this time period, they're just men from... Southern Europe and Eastern Europe. This new wave of immigration, I could say. Later on, you start having more uh, females and families coming in. Uh, if you look at the picture, that is a picture at Ellis Island. You see all the immigrants coming in. Uh, I should mention, there really are no laws for immigration in this time period. Uh, you might have heard talk about uh, legal immigration versus illegal immigration. There really wasn't that much of rules in this time period for immigrants. Pretty much, if you make it over, congratulations, stay here as long as you want. Uh, in time, that's going to change for reasons that we're going to talk about in just a little bit. But pretty much there is no legal or illegal immigration in this time period. Now, the experience of this immigrants, uh, it's really not very easy, all right? Just because there are job opportunities in the United States doesn't mean it's really easy work. We talked about factory work. 
Uh, it doesn't mean that they live very, not very well. They live pretty well. Well, we'll get there. Um, but it's not easy. In fact, they don't live very well at all. Sorry, I don't know why I said that. Uh, the quarters were camped, uh, cramped, not camped, they are cramped. If you go over one more picture, you're going to see one of these ethnic enclaves. All right, another word for these ethnic enclaves are ghettos. Uh, the term ghetto actually comes from the Jewish quarter of Venice, where basically Jews were expected to live. Uh, in time, the term ghetto, in this time period, uh, just meant pretty much an ethnic enclave, where pretty much different people from different countries, immigrants, came over pretty much where they lived. Um, this is often out of necessity. I mean, remember, a lot of these immigrants are coming over. They don't necessarily know the language. They don't necessarily know the culture. Uh, they want to be around something familiar. So pretty much every major city in this time period had little ethnic enclaves. Um, some of the more famous ones, like Little Italy in New York, uh, Chinatown, pretty much every city out of Chinatown. Places like Chicago, you had like Little Lithuania, things like that. Uh, also, uh, most of the people came to port cities. That should not be too surprising because there's no airplanes and you can't really drive across the ocean. So most immigrants are coming into port cities. Uh, the most common port of call is New York uh, on the East Coast, um, in, on the West Coast in San Francisco. Uh, second most common on the East Coast is actually New Orleans. You have a lot of immigrants coming into New Orleans, particularly from Italy. Uh, New Orleans gets a very strong Italian Influx in this time period, actually, still reflected in a lot of Italian of a lot of New Orleans culture, is of Italian influence. Uh, the the delicious one I like to talk about is a muffaletta. Uh, maybe you've had a muffaletta. Uh, that's pretty much Italian meats on top of Italian bread, and it's from New Orleans. It's very much an immigrant thing. I should also mention that most immigrants never assimilate. Sorry, most first generation immigrants. That's keyword there. Most first-generation immigrants never assimilate. Um, they don't really learn the language. They don't really learn to like the culture or whatever. Most of them are just really planning. They don't really want to learn the language. You know, they're living in these ethnic enclaves. Uh, they're working with people in factories where you don't really need to know the language. You just need to know how to sew a button or whatever. You know, they might learn enough English to just kind of get by and buy stuff. But by and large, they still, you know, thought in their old language. They still talk to their old language most of the time, and that's pretty much how they existed. Now, I should mention that is first-generation immigrants, because, um, well, we'll talk about second-generation immigrants in a second. Uh, implications and problems with this. I mean, immigrants are cool. However, there is a lot of fear that comes across um, the people who are already in America. All right, one of those times I'm going to use a term that sounds weirdly... It means something different nowadays, but the term they used was Native American. All right, now you're thinking Native American, like, you know, Indians and the, the Sioux and the Apache and stuff. You're right. That's what Native American means now. But in the 1870s, 1880s, the term Native American was like a white person whose ancestors came over on the Mayflower or something. Okay? They, they called themselves nativist. Uh, they, there was a fear that immigrants would overrun the country. Uh, basically, that overrun all the jobs, that take over the country... Honestly, the same criticisms of immigrants back then are the same sort of immigrants that are used nowadays. Same sort of criticisms. Um, they never learned the language. They're taking our jobs. They're uh, driving wages down. They don't assimilate. They're going to overrun our culture, etc., etc., etc. This is sadly very common in U.S. history. 
Honestly, the verbiage against immigrants never changes. Uh, these same arguments are used pretty much throughout U.S. history. Uh, Anti-Catholicism also becomes pretty common in this time period because uh, you're having immigrants from places like Italy where you have a lot more Catholics there. A lot of the Russian immigrants are either Jewish or uh, Eastern Orthodox, which is also a form of Catholicism. Uh, Anti-Semitism has been around America for a while. We'll talk about that later when we get to World War II. Uh, that being said, though, you have a lot more anti-Catholic uh, anti rhetoric going around, uh, mainly because there weren't too many Catholics before in the country. I mean, outside of South Louisiana, tons of Catholics around here. But throughout the rest of the country, uh, most Christians were Protestant. Now you're having a lot more immigrant, you know, Catholic, Catholic immigrants come in. And so it's like, oh my God, it's a foreign invasion because theoretically Catholics take orders from the Pope and they're like, what if the Pope says they should take over America? You know, all the Catholics would fight us. It, it never actually happens. There's also a lot of violence. This is true. There's a lot of violence against immigrants. Uh, a lot of attacks, a lot of, you know, we're going to talk about lynchings later on when we talk about race, but... You know, violence against immigrants. Uh, immigrants being singled out, uh, immigrant stores being destroyed, immigrants being attacked, sometimes killed, uh, because they were deemed as unwhite or un-American. Now, I bet some of you are wondering, wait, Italians were not considered white? Yeah, Italians were not considered white in this time period. Uh, they weren't considered black, but they were considered not white. Um, not part of the quote-unquote racial hierarchy. Uh, for That's mainly with upper and middle class Americans. Uh, they re are really worried about this loss of what they call America. Uh, lower class persons, working class people, are worried about their loss of their job. Or they're afraid that the wages are going to go down. Uh, there's, there's more awareness of racial divisions, the idea that races are different from a biological standpoint. Uh, the word is eugenics. If we were in class, I'd write it on the board. E-U-G-N-I-C-S. Eugenics. It's scientific racism, and I'm scientific racism is in quotes. That's in sarcasm. It's it's just people wanting to be racist, but they use science, quote unquote, to justify it. Things like, oh, if you look at the frontal lobe of a skull of a of a Caucasian, they have more brain power, and that shows they have higher levels of thing. It's they want to be racist. They just want to have, quote unquote, scientific evidence for it. Now, like I said, that's immigration. Uh, things ultimately do change with things like second-generation immigrants. I mentioned most first-generation immigrants never really learn the language, but things happen. They never really learn the culture, but things happen. You know, you might have come over to America expecting to work here for a couple years and go back to the home country, but maybe you meet somebody. Maybe you meet somebody from your own, you know, home country. Maybe you meet somebody else. You know, maybe you meet a nice girl on the train. So maybe you decide, you know what, I'm going to get married, and she's from... Lithuania, I'm from Poland, so we're going to speak broken English to each other. Or maybe it's, you know, you, you marry you know another Italian, you're all two Italians that are together. But uh, your kid, your second generation kid, all they know is America. They don't know Italy. They grow up learning um, English. They know the language. Uh, American culture becomes their culture. Um, and that's ultimately what happens with most immigrants, pretty much regardless of time. You know, the first generation doesn't really assimilate, but the second generation can't help but assimilate because that's all they know. So that's the second of the big five. Uh, the third and final one we're talking about this week, we're going to talk about more next week, don't worry, the two others, is urban growth. Now this goes hand in hand with 
immigration, but and also with the rise of big business. Uh, there's a lot of contributing factors for why cities grow so big. Uh, one of the big ones is immigration. Uh, immigrants settle in cities, you know, port cities. Even a place like Chicago, you may not think it's a port city, but it totally is. It's on Lake Michigan. Uh, all these major cities have, start having a lot more immigrants come in. Uh, manufacturing is often centered around cities because that's just where more people are. You know, if you build a, a factory in Raceland, you can only get the people who live in Raceland. You know, there may not be enough people to man the factory, but if you're in a place like New Orleans or Baton Rouge or, you know, bigger cities, New York, you're going to have a lot more people to draw upon for your labor pool. Also, because of all those regular economic downturns, it's viewed that there's more economic security within the city. You know, cities have more job opportunities. You know, if Tully's Taylor goes bust down there in Raceland, well, there may not be another Taylor. But in a big city, there might be multiple Taylors. There might be multiple shirt factories, that sort of thing. Uh, cities also provide a greater sense of community and human interaction. You know, in Raceland, you might feel very isolated. Maybe some of y'all from Raceland or those area feel isolated already. You're like, oh my gosh, there's in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing to do. In cities, there's a greater sense of community. There's like, wow, there's more stuff around here. Also, anonymity. Um, in Raceland, even though there's not a lot of people there, people know your business. In a big city, you know, you can walk out of a bar and nobody thinks twice of it because nobody um, recognizes you. And there's just more chance to, like, interact with other people. You might see more people than just your family. Uh, because of all these things, cities get massive growth. Like, huge growth in a very short period of time. Some of these cities triple in size. They triple in population. I just want you to imagine if all of a sudden three times the amount of people showed up anywhere. Like, you're going to need a lot more infrastructure. You're going to need a lot more technology because even though the population has expanded, the city size sometimes didn't. Basically, the cities become very cramped. Very high population density happens. They're going to have to change things with transportation. You know, people need to get around the city in large numbers, so they start bringing things like streetcars in, public transit, um, housing. Housing becomes a really big issue. Where are these people going to live? They start building tenements and apartments because instead of a single-family home, you can fit multiple families in the same footprint. Um, steel is very necessary for these quote-unquote skyscrapers. Uh, original skyscraper is just 10 stories tall. In time, buildings get much, much taller. Some of these apartment buildings get super tall. You know, just all sorts of people there. Um, utilities. People need water. People need food. you got to figure out a way to get food into these cities, you know. You can't really have a farm if you're living in a multi-story tenement. Also, hate to be crass, but something really important to think about is, like, sewage. You know, if you have way more people living in the same place, they're making a lot more poop. And that poop's got to go somewhere. Hopefully very far away, uh, because it's unsanitary. You can't just, like, throw it out in the middle of the uh, street or... God forbid, throw it into the river or the lake because, oh my gosh, like you, you have to drink and do things from there. You got to get that poop somewhere else. Like, seriously, like infrastructure becomes majorly important. Because of this, because of all this flux, uh, these cities get super crowded. Super crowded. Uh, crowded. It's very cramped, very high population density. 
Uh, single family dwellings kind of go away. Uh, a lot of these places, like if you could find a place to live, if you're a you know a poor immigrant. They may not have running water. That's a problem. They might not have sewage. That's a bigger problem. Uh, some tenement houses even rented beds and shifts. Uh, the way that worked is basically you you rent a bed for three hours a day. So like you sleep in the bed, and then somebody nudges you. You go to work. They sleep for eight hours. Uh, somebody nudges them, they go to work. The third person sleeps for eight hours. Then you nudge them, because you're back from work, and you sleep for eight hours. Like, it was so desperate, you may not even own a house, or own a bed, or own your room. You just sleep there for a couple hours. Um, very crowded. Some of these, you might have multi-families living in a single room. Um, you know, maybe a 10 by 10 room or something, which has no running water. Also, it may not have any gas or electricity, so you're like you're cooking on a stove. Uh, that's a fire hazard if there ever was one. Plus, it might get sweltingly hot. Uh, I mean, air conditioning exists, but the ventilation might get might get bad, so you may not have a lot of uh, air circulating there. And as cities develop, uh, more people who are able to move out move out into the suburbs. Now, this is not the suburbs as we know them. Uh, this is suburbs just kind of outside of the main district. Uh, one I like to talk about is New Orleans. I mean, New Orleans, I'm sure you probably know New Orleans. I think it's something like the Garden District or St. Charles. This is the type of suburbs in that time period. You know, you're not in the quarter. You're not by Canal Street or in the Central Business, Dis- Central Business District. You're out a little bit. You can still ride the streetcar in the town. You know, still, still ride the streetcar into work. But you have a little bit more space. So what this develops is economic stratification, all right? The idea that certain areas of town have certain class elements to it, all right? Like, the rich people live in one part of town, the poor people live in another part of town, the middle class people live in a different part of town. All of a sudden, beforehand, where classes kind of lived very close to each other, because of the growth of these cities and because some people are moving out and they have the infrastructure with things like, um, you know, streetcars, people start moving in areas that are more based upon their economic level than just proximity. You know, in a place like Raceland, rich and poor live very close to each other because it's not very big. Now, as these cities get bigger, you have economic stratification. And these cities, because they're growing so fast, often get very dysfunctional. All right? These cities are filthy. Uh, Imagine if, like, three times the amount of people moved into your house... That's three times the amount of garbage, three times the amount of food and banana wrapper. Banana wrappers? Banana peels or whatever you people eat nowadays. Chip bags. Uh, three times the amount of poop. Three. So your sewage system, or if you have a septic tank, it's really struggling. Three times the amount of water. Uh, three times people using hot water. So your hot water heater is like shot 24-7. You need time, all right? You need time to grow out a little bit. And that takes time and money, and that's something these cities don't have because they're just growing so fast. And so these cities become filthy, like, just for the sheer amount of people. And because of this, there becomes a perception of crime. Now, the important thing to remember is perception, not necessarily the reality. You know, if you have three times the amount of people, you might have three times the crime, but it seems way worse, if that makes any sense. It's the same amount of time crime per capita, it's just way more people, so it just seems way more prevalent. Uh, there's the idea that these, um, you know, these city centers are, are filled with these unsavory immigrants. Immigrants are viewed as unsavory. 
And because all the rich people are leaving with economic stratification, it kind of creates this underclass, if that makes sense. It's basically, it's, it's poor people. It's people who work in factories, and it's minorities. Um, some of it might be African Americans, some of it might be Hispanic Americans, some of it might just be immigrants. So the city's core really becomes perceived as lower class, as a bad place. A place where, like, quote-unquote, rich and middle-class decent people, quote-unquote, stay away from because the city has perception of being a scary, harmful place. That still exists, y'all. Um, that, that rhetoric really hasn't changed. If you listen to modern politics and people talk about cities, they might say things like, oh, they're so dysfunctional. Oh, they're falling apart. Oh, they used to be better. That language has not changed since the 1880s. It's the same thing, just like with immigration. Now, who's going to help them? Well, if you go over one side, you're going to hear about who kind of brings this together. It's called the urban boss. The urban boss is theoretically a neighborhood leader. Oftentimes, they're based upon one ethnicity. Remember, in a lot of these areas, you have ethnic enclaves, where pretty much people from one country live in one neighborhood. Pretty much the ethnic boss, the, not the ethnic boss, the urban boss takes control over a particular neighborhood and offers, you know, basically once get is offering votes. You know, these immigrants are able to vote, all right? It's pretty easy to become a citizen in this time period. Likewise, these urban bosses might use unscrupulous means to say, hey, congratulations, vote. And they are offering to politicians a bunch of votes in exchange for goods and services. Uh, the picture I have right there is Boss Tweed. Uh, boss Tweed is the boss of Tammany Hall. Tammany Hall, this is kind of pre-Civil War, but he's around for a while. He is the I boss of the Irish neighborhoods in New York. Basically, Boss Tweed controls the Irish. And the Irish are a pretty big group. And so basically, if you're an aspiring politician, you might go to Boss Tweed and be like, Boss Tweed, I want to become, you know, alderman or mayor or whatever. And Boss Tweed's like, okay, I can give you, you know, 10,000 Irish votes, but I'm going to need something from you. It might be a favor. It might be a practical thing. Like, you know, we want Irish policemen. You know, uh, hire some of my guys in the city government. We want decent jobs. That sort of thing. Is this inherently corrupt? Not necessarily. Does it become corrupt? Yes, it does. Does this help with the perception of cities by the quote-unquote decent people who've moved out to the suburbs. Boy, howdy. You have the rise of what's called machine politics, where basically the different neighborhood bosses, the different urban bosses, are kind of competing with each other for the different um, politicians. You know, Boss Tweed is the Democratic boss of the Irish, but other ethnicities might vote in different ways. Some might vote Republican. Some might vote Democrat. In the South, pretty much everybody's Democrat. But what type of Democrat? That sort of thing. And the idea that cities are corrupt places come from these urban bosses. Now, Boss Tweed or somebody like him might be like, hey, we're just trying to give people a shot. You know, I'm working for my ethnic group. I'm working for the Irish. You know, this is the way America works. I don't like it, but I'm trying to do the best that I can with what I got. Now, that's kind of the, on the broad scale. Uh, the one that gets a lot of attention, if you go one more, is saloons. Saloons become viewed as the ultimate ethnic blight. 
Now, here's the thing. When I say saloon, you're probably thinking of the Old West. Like, ka-ching, ka-ching. You know, there's two doors and somebody playing a Stephen Foster song. Camp down, ladies, sing this song. No. Um, in the cities, the saloon is seen as the ultimate urban blight. The way that saloons work, all right, in cities, it's not just a place to get alcohol. I can't iterate that enough. Most urban saloons, it's not just a place to get alcohol. In fact, if you're an immigrant coming fresh off a boat, you go to your, you know, you go to Little Italy, you go to Little Lithuania, Chinatown, whatever, you find the saloon because the saloon is everything. It's a bank. It's a place where you can find a job. Most of these saloons provide food. Most of these foods uh, are a place where you can speak with people from your country. You can help you, you know, find a place to live. Uh, find a job, uh, learn what neighborhoods are safe for you to go to, what neighborhoods are not safe to go to. You know, for a lot of men, you know, and a lot of these pe- um, a lot of these first generation immigrants, they're men who may not have cooking ability, or honestly, you know, your little tenement house, it's it's tiny, and you know, you don't want to cause a fire hazard by cooking because it gets so hot. It's the summer, so you go to a saloon. This is like a neighborhood center, you know. Um, Politicians that come to saloons to give speeches, uh, they'd have like sing-alongs and stuff. Like they'd have dances. It, it, you might meet your mate in a saloon. Like it could be a dating service. A saloon was everything for most of these immigrants, but it became viewed as an urban blight. It became viewed as just alcohol because they're like, oh my God, these you know these these workers are going there, spending their wages. Uh, drinking the booze. So when we get into prohibition and, you know, getting rid of drinking, a lot of this is an anti-immigrant backlash. You know, um, uh, Catholicism uses a lot of alcohol in its rituals. Um, that's another thing that they talked against, the the, uh, the people who are against the saloons, is the idea that, oh my gosh, these horrible Catholics, they're, you know, they're, that's, a, that's an immoral thing they're doing for religious purposes. Now, to be fair, you don't get drunk on communion wine, but they don't know too much about you know the immigrant experience because they're like, oh, they're they're scary, they're different, that sort of shtick. Uh, another thing that happens that I don't have a picture of for a pretty obvious reason. Um, uh, I'm assuming you all know where babies come from. Is the brothel uh, with the excess of men in these regions, particularly immigrant men who may not have families, may not have wives or romantic prospects or may, some of them may, you know, remember a lot of them are thinking they're going to go back to their home country. So they're not looking for a long-term relationship. Um, women become a prized commodity as just for part-time companionship, uh, shall we say. Uh, not to be crass, but prostitution becomes really big. Now that also doesn't help the perception of cities and these ethnic groups. You know, if you're like, oh, the, all these immigrants are taking over our country, you know, they're not really spending money. Remember, most of these immigrants aren't buying houses. They're not really investing long-term in the, in the United States because they're, at first, they're hoping to go back to their home country. So what they're, if they are spending their money, they're spending their money on, like, you know, alcohol at the saloon or maybe some companionship down in the brothel. It's not seen as like they're not investing in the United States. They're not investing in America. They're not trying to become one of us. 
Now, here's the thing with prostitution. Prostitution is not legal in the United States at the time period. Uh, there's only one state now that's uh, legalized prostitution. That's Nevada. It's not even the entire state. It's a couple of counties. Uh, by and large, prostitution is not legal in the United States. But it's tolerated if it's contained within one area. And that's what happens to these cities. Is basically there, there's the idea that we're not going to get rid of all prostitution. You know, sometimes they call it the, uh, the oldest profession. Uh, that's kind of a misnomer. But the idea that we're not going to get rid of prostitution, maybe we can contain it. So you start having things called red light districts. A red light district is just the area town where the prostitution is. And the deal is they don't want them walking the streets, so the idea of the red light is basically they stand in front of the window, and you can look in and see what's there, and if you're interested, you can walk inside. So they're not on the street. It's like the idea that there's this plausibility, uh, plausible deniability. It, quote-unquote, looks cleaner. It's in a contained area. Uh, the f- most famous red light district in all of America is in New Orleans, it's called Storyville. It's it's a block, you know, several block area of New Orleans. Pretty much, that's where all the red light houses were. That's where all the brothels were, and it was fairly famous throughout the country. Of like, oh yeah, you go to New Orleans. That's the most famous uh, red light district. But honestly, all cities had a red light district. Pretty much, any city in the United States had a red light district. It may not be advertised the way that Storyville was in New Orleans well, advertised as strongly. Like, they literally made guidebooks and, like, had postcards for Storyville in New Orleans. But every city had one. It's it's tolerated. It may not be something championed, but it's tolerated. Now, are there implications and problems here? Yes. <laughs> uh, somebody has to clean up the city just on a sheer sanitation level. Like, you got to get the poop out of there. You know, they have to build sewage. They have to figure out ways to get clean water. They have to figure out ways that, like, disease doesn't have massive outbreaks. Oh, yeah. I know we're in quarantine right now, but there were massive outbreaks. Like, cholera, or the flu, or did I mention cholera? That was a big one. Uh, All sorts of different outbreaks of different diseases in these cities. Because people are pretty close together. They have to figure out, like, how are we going to make things cleaner? How are we going to make things better, sanitation-wise? Uh, a lot of a lot of people organize on moral grounds to get rid of saloons and brothels. Uh, they're fairly successful as we get on. We're going to talk about later. We can talk about uh, probably uh, in two weeks. We can talk about the reaction to these changes. Uh, moral crusaders come about. You know the temperance unions, um, anti prostitution leagues, or anti brothel leagues. Uh, saloons and brothels are probably the most blatant example of. Corruption, not corruption, but like urban blight or the underclass or unsavory elements of cities. There's a lot more. Um, saloons, though, are probably the most blatant that people talk bad about. A lot of that is an anti-immigrant a- a backlash. Uh, brothels, too. Brothels, too. Many for being so blatant. Um, upper and middle class people went to brothels as well. Uh, they just try to be more discreet about it. So that does it for today. Wow, I've been talking for quite a while, and we're about half done. Uh, next class, we're going to be talking about 
the West, and also challenges of faith and com- uh, confidence, but only about the West. So, with that, uh, be thinking about that. Uh, thank you. This is Dr. Tully. That's week two, where we do the first half of the five major changes. <laughs>